Weirdo bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, Genre Junkies. It's Sandra. And this is Scott. Stitches is over there, and we are ready to talk to you tonight about a very exciting author interview we had. We got to talk to Laurel K. Hamilton, which... That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. It is a big deal. I was excited. Sandra was... Very excited. Very excited. And... um. This was my first time reading one of her novels, and so I'm excited to talk about my experience with that. Yeah, as a first-time reader. So we'll talk a little bit, and then we've got our interview with Laurel. It is spoiler-free, and then um, we'll come back and do the spoiler section, kind of same as always. Um, hope everybody's been doing as well as possible during this absolutely insane time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, um, we, had our, um, we had our first COVID scare i guess you'd say in air quotes yeah like a work-related possible contamination situation not not too too bad for either of us but um, of course we took our tests passed with flying colors but uh at least now we've had that experience (laughs) yes you've had that experience so if you think you have to do it get it done your genre junkies have they live to tell the tale don't be scared be a genre junkie So something else that was like really, really exciting that I'm sorry, I just I want to talk about a little bit genre related is we finally, finally watched True Detective season one. Yeah, we did. And (laughs) that was a huge deal for me. That was a huge deal. So I will say I loved it. The first couple episodes, it took me a while to really get into it and really like like the characters. But after after the whole season was done, I was very happy with it. Sandra. Um, I'm completely obsessed with it. I can't wait to watch the other two seasons. It was one of those things like I described season one is like, I feel like somebody made it for me, like somebody crafted it for me and like molded it and like shaped it and made it all nice and pretty out of like clay. And they fire baked it in the oven and they glazed it. And they're like, here you go. Here, I made you this. I made you this season of television just for you, and absolutely adored it. Of course, um, no spoilers for those who haven't seen it. All three seasons are uh, anthology, but this one has to do with a lot of stuff that ticks my boxes of st- things that I like, and it is kind of a procedural, though, be it an all tradition untraditional one, uh, just like the book we reviewed this week. <laughs> procedural, however non-traditional. So a little bit of background on our book this week. I think that most readers are going to at least be familiar with who Laurel K. Hamilton is. Uh, She's responsible for two series of books, the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series and the Mary Gentry. Uh, This is obviously an outing in the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter novel. So this newest book is called Sucker Punch. So this was, first of all, this book is freaking gorgeous. Like if you get a chance to... It's a really pretty cover. Oh my gosh. It's got like, you know, kind of like our our leopard on the front and it's lots of blues and blacks and a big gorgeous like aquamarine and gold eye. There's like a blood drippy thing. And like when you shift the cover to and fro, you get like shiny, shiny bits. I can't, I don't know. It's gorgeous. Super pleased. And it's um when you open it up too, when you open her up, it's a beautiful hunter green and black with like blood red 
on the spine. It's definitely a departure of from the the covers that I am familiar with seeing for this series. Oh yes. So um uh I gosh, I I could look up exactly what book it was, but a number of years ago the book switched covers from kind of like what a lot of us knew to these much more beautiful uh, dare I say serious covers? I, d- I don't want to say that and sound insulting, but um, where they're more artistic and not just here is a book cover that kind of vaguely represents the story inside. There, there's definitely an artistic style when it comes to the covers of books, when it comes to genre related books, particularly right. sci-fi, uh, supernatural, where you you know where you have like the hero or heroine on the cover or and you know that that kind of art I, you all know what we're talking about and yeah. this new trend towards kind of a more um more subtle cover while still being just beautiful i'm a big fan of oh yeah no and these covers have been great for years and years so this was no exception it's such a treat so let me tell you a little bit about Anita Blake, the series, my my history with it, and then we'll kind of talk about the book more specifically. So Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter, is a series of novels and some short novels and also comic books, of which I have quite a few. Um, <laughs> let's just put it that way. Um, that... Miss Laurel K. Hamilton has been writing since 1993 when Guilty Pleasures came out. So this is an urban fantasy series in that it is contemporary. It is basically our world, only there are supernatural things and everybody is aware of them. Uh, But other than that, there's a lot of things that makes it exactly like the world we live in. There is the character of Anita Blake, who starts out the series as basically known as the executioner, known as war. (laughs) Um, She executes vampires and supernaturals. Um, She raises the dead as an animator where she raises zombies. um, And that goes into a whole, whole bunch of stuff. She gets into some romantic entanglements with supernatural characters and that grows leaps and bounds throughout the series um her love life is very fascinating and prolific and very entertaining you need a flow chart you need a flow chart these are um in case you couldn't tell these are one of those books where adults get into adult situation kids so just know that (laughs) a lot of the books we read are like that we don't usually give a warning for that but you know just saying. <laughs> um, so my history with the books, my history with the books is I started reading them not in 1993. Uh, I was a little young, but I started reading them when I was a teenager. Let's say about 15 to be safe. And my friends read them and I read them and I really enjoyed them and I continued to read them and I've uh, continued to stay a- at least somewhat involved in the series as best as I possibly could. Um, like I said, I love the comic book run when that was coming out and I got some of those. These books were very, very key part of my teen and early adults and into my adult reading. It's when you've been reading a character, characters, but especially one character for this long, you get very, very involved emotionally. Um, It just becomes a big part of you, I guess I could say. Um, 
I mean, so obviously she's been writing these books for more than like 25 years. This is the 27th novel in the series. Laurel K. Hamilton is a best-selling writer, New York Times bestseller. Um, People all over the world love, love, love these books and have for a very long time. I see a lot of myself in the character of Anita. A lot of ways we're super different, but in a lot of ways we're really the same. I've always appreciated that she was an assertive, strong female that spoke her mind, um, that she was very capable. As the books have gone on and the series have gone on, she's opened up a lot and she's more vulnerable and she's embraced her insecurities. She's embracing her mental health. Really, really incredible stuff. She's found love and she's found love with multiple people. Her character is polyamorous, which is really cool. <laughs> you don't get to see that a lot. It's it's not common in books to see that 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 viewpoint. No. And um, she is in love with people who are not, you know, fully human. They're where people lycanthrope, um, other big word I cannot say, uh, vampires, <laughs> werewolves, uh, and all that stuff. And I, um, I'm not polyamorous. Scott's not polyamorous. We don't know enough to say that like, oh, this is just the most wonderful representation of polyamory. But I like the way it is depicted in these books. It makes me feel a lot of love for these characters. And I want them to be happy and be happy with each other. And I think that's what really matters at the end of the day, right? I agree. Yeah, I I think, you know, coming into this fresh, I knew some stuff about the series because of you. Mm -hmm. And then going into this book, I did spend a little bit of time on Wikipedia to kind of, you know, catch up on exactly who these characters were. Yeah. Um, But not a lot of time on that. And I, and I have to say, Wikipedia doesn't do her relationships justice. When you read the quick synopsises, synopsises. No, any wiki you find out there, it's like, it'll be good to kind of like give you a crash course yes yeah but you know the wikipedia makes it sound kind of haremish mm-hmm. and there is a bit of a fun level of haremish uh, of harem uh ness ness in it but it's not it's not uh the the complete uh, harem fantasy that the wiki- that the Wikipedia kind of makes it sound like <laughs> it actually is very sweet and the characters are very honest and open and th- they trust each other mm-hmm. and I think that that's really really powerful to see and it's 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 nice yes very very cool and as the series has gone on um Anita has, you know, collected all these people and characters in her life and enemies, and she's developed other sorts of powers as her time has gone on. One that's really, really interesting is called the Ardour, which um, is kind of hard to describe, but for the most part, it had been found only in vampires until Anita kind of developed it, caught it. I don't know what exactly to say, but it's um, a sexual power that allows her to feed from other supernatural creatures and humans. And of course, that's going to make her relationships and the, you know, kind of sexual erotic scenes way more interesting, frankly, and (laughs) and supernatural. I'm not a huge romance reader, as you guys have probably noticed, even when, like, I mean, it's not really one of our genres that we focus on here at Genre Junkies. And so I'm kind of like picky about my romance that I like. Uh, But I I like the way Laurel Kay and her characters handle their romance. 
It's a, it's fun, rompy times. <laughs> but make no mistake, a lot of the books, including Sucker Punch, really, really focus on the mystery, the fantasy, the horror, the creepiness. And may I just say, too, these books have gotten even funnier as time have gone on. I just, I love how much of her sense of humor she's putting into these books. Fantastic. Yeah, so Anita, as her job as a marshal, she's a she's a supernatural marshal now. I don't know if I even said that. There's so much to like recap. Well, l- l- let me say this because I-, I am not as privy to all of the changes that have happened, but um, this book does a really good job of catching you up without it being a whole bunch of exposition. You know, she talks about her her history as being originally one of the vampire hunters and being one of the four horsemen and how things have changed. And now she's her job is, I guess, quote unquote, a little bit more legitimate. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. more of like a, like a really a government arm. But it's, you know, I think I, I want to say this. Because I have read none of the other books, if you're interested in this at all, by all means, you can start at number one. But don't be afraid to go ahead and jump in at some at Sucker Punch. I think that this book stands up really well on its own. With, and and with- like, how rare is that in a series this in depth? There's like way shorter series where you can't do that. So it's actually really inclusive and cool that she writes her books that way. And we talk about it in the interview. Too. Yes, we do. So I, I want to talk about my experience with this with the book. Um, this was an absolute page turner for me. Yay! It's a really long book. <laughs> it is a long book. It, it's almost yeah. 600 pages in its hardcover edition, which for me is is an epic novel. Uh it while at first looking at it, I was I was um skeptical, intimidated. Oh, uh, I blew through this book, guys. It is such a fun, fast paced read, and it's that kind of fast paced where you know when you're reading a book and you just you're you're just devouring it, and then it ends, and you're like, I want I want like two hundred more pages of this. Mm. This gives it to you, and it doesn't really ever let up. And I really, I was really impressed and surprised by that. I think that is so cool to hear you say that. Um, For me, this was absolutely a page turner, solid, solid page turner. And I was super happy with it. It's wonderful to get to see old friends, which is what it's like when you have been with a series for so long, is these are old friends of yours. And my favorite character in the book, Edward, he's in this book. So that was like, yes, I was super stoked to see him. Um, Yeah, she does a great job of giving you a lot of backstory. But like, what's relevant? Like, because there are lots of characters and lots of moving pieces in the series. So it's it's like, okay, and another book that has more of these folks in it should give you a little bit more. Oh, this has, you know, references to a past case of hers. Cool. We'll tell you about that case from that other book. And it's like, it's really, really nice because you're like, just kind of wading into the water like, okay, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable here, even though I'm a new person. Um, I could totally see that. And those references don't feel too inside baseball. There, there's some no. references that that need to be explained that are for the for the for the plot of this story. And there's some things that are just kind of references to things that have happened in the past, which they actually 
they're more than just a wink wink to regular readers. Right. It really works to kind of whet your appetite to read more. Like I want right. to know about some of those stories. Yeah, you want to know about those stories, those cases, those characters. Um, everybody's very in depth and none of the, the men, none of the women, supernatural human in these books are paint by numbers. They're really their own people. And I should say too, one thing I always really admired about these books. Now we have the polyamorous connection, but there's been a lot about sexuality and sexual orientation and gender. Really, really cool stuff um, that I, I really love to read about. You guys know we talk about that stuff on the show all the time. And especially for me, having read these characters for so long, when I first started reading them, when I was, you know, in my teens, there was not a lot of books that were talking about um, you know, so many different types of people and way to ways to identify and ways to have sexuality. And it's really, really cool that it's like something that was kind of foundational in that subgenre. Um, and also urban fantasy in general, let's just kind of kind of categorize it as that they're really, you know, we hate to be too contrite about any genre because things blend. But she is also one of the pioneers of that. And if you like a badass woman detective who can execute supernaturals and navigate crazy worlds and, you know, all of that stuff, you you definitely have to thank Laurel K. Hamilton for that. She was foundational in having that energy in books. So can I tell you a little bit about Sucker Punch? Sure. So uh, just kind of to give everybody, you know, what are, what are we getting into here with the story? When a fellow U.S. Marshal asks Anita Blake to fly to a tiny community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula on an emergency consult, she knows time is running short. When she arrives, there's plenty of proof that a young were-leopard killed his uncle in the most gruesome and bloody way possible. As the mounting evidence points to him, a warrant of execution is already underway. But something seems off about the murder, and Anita has been asked for her expert opinion on the crime scene. Despite escalating pressure from local cops and the family's cries for justice for their dead patriarch, Anita quickly realizes that the evidence doesn't quite add up. Time is against Anita as the tight-knit community is up in arms and its fear of supernaturals is growing. She races to uncover the truth and determine whether the marshals have caught the killer or are about to execute an innocent man all in the name of justice. It really is a murder mystery. I was not expecting that. Like I said, usually the books, there's something like that. There's a murder mystery. There's a, there's a, or there's a baddie in town or something like that. There's a really good plot, but a lot of her books are centered around a really good mystery. So you can't beat that. We love a mystery. We do love a mystery. So for our readers who have not been introduced to Laurel K. Hamilton and Anita Blake, who do you think should be picking this up of our listeners to read it? Oh, man, that's a toughie because it's obviously going to pluck at my heartstrings a little bit as, again, a series that I've been with for so, so long. Um, You know, honestly, I think that these books do have quite a mass appeal. Um, I think that men would like them, women would like them, non-gendered folks would like them, humans, supernaturals, <laughs> um, everybody. I mean, so jump in now, jump in at the beginning, you know, like figure out where you want to get in and just give these books a try and be incredibly entertained. And I know for a lot of people, they love it when a series has a lot of books for them to devour. And 
why not try one <laughs> that has, you know, 27 novels? There is something to be said about falling in love with a series and already having a whole lot of stuff to dig into. Yeah. Um, it's hard to give an appeal score to a series that's this successful, that's this, that's this big. Um, I think that this has a broad appeal. I think that for, for those who are not into anything supernatural at all, th- you know, this, this might not have it. But man, if you like supernatural at all. Yeah. Like at Par- all. Paranormal, supernatural. If you are into creatures and there's so many great, I wish I could say the word. Why can't I say the word? If you're like me. Stereotypical. I can't say it either. But if you're yeah. like me, you should, and you have, you're like me, you haven't picked up this series, even though you've probably heard about it for decades. Just pick it up. Give it yeah. a shot. And, and How I don't. it hurt? It's not going to hurt you. And you don't have to start from the beginning if you don't want to. Really, as someone who has only read this book, go ahead and pick up this book. I think yeah. I think that you'll, I, I don't think that you'll regret it. No. Again, what could it hurt? Can't hurt anything. Can only help you. And just look at where we've come to since 1993. You know, like people who've been readers for a really long time, like us <laughs> and older, you know, things were different. Books were different in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. And especially as someone like me, whose other favorite authors, you know, are Stephen King and Anne Rice, you know, you see cultural shifts and it's a little bit of a time capsule when you read books that by authors that stretch such a huge period of time. Um, But if you like paranormal supernatural creatures at all, and especially like what I was going to say was with the with the lycanthropes, the were people, there's better words for this. I mean, I think it's therianthropes. Therianthropes is now the politically correct term we use in the books. Um, There's all the different big cats, lions, there's hyenas, there's rats, there's... There's a were animal for you. There's a were animal for you, or maybe being an animator is more your style and you want to raise the dead. Perhaps you love vampires. If you love vampires, why the hell have you not read (laughs) any Anita Blake books? All right, so I think without further ado, we've got to get into this very, very exciting interview with Laurel K. Hamilton that we are so humbled that she graciously did a little call with us. Scott, why don't you talk a little bit about there's some tech stuff. FYI, we had a few technical difficulties with this interview. You will notice a change in audio about halfway through. Um, the audio quality is still good, but I apologize for the uh, for the degradation in audio in the second half. I mean, the world's an imperfect place. And, uh, you know, sometimes it just is what it is. But like we said, it still is good and the content is freaking fire. So that's all that matters. <laughs> Without much more further, further ado, the Genre Junkies are proud to present Laurel K. Hamilton. Enjoying the show? Leave us a review. You can find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies, as well as GenreJunkies.com. And now, back to the show. With us today, needing really no introduction, is Laurel K. Hamilton, author of the Anita Blake series. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Hi, Scott. Hi, Sandra. It's good to be here. 
Oh my gosh, this is amazing to have you. This is so exciting. So I wanted to go ahead and start as a first time reader of the series. I was surprised by how little previous knowledge I actually needed to become invested in your characters and your world. What is your method to making your books approachable to those who are just coming in? Well, I try to treat every book as much as possible where you can pick it up and come in. And that is, you know, that gets harder and harder with the more books, the more background you build up. But I really do sit down and I think, uh, you know, I'll write the first draft because you don't edit as you do first draft. That that's That'll stop you in your tracks every time. But then in the subsequent drafts, I look at it and go, okay, if I had never picked this series up before, this was a brand new book. If I was in a bookstore or in the airport and I was picking this book up and I was reading it, would this draw me in and would this be enough information so that I didn't feel lost? I really do. I really do try to bear that in mind. Um, it, 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 it is quite a challenge at this point, but I really do think about first time readers because I still hear from people that say just that, like you said, you're a first time reader. I actually do still get a lot of people saying, I just found you. Oh, I'm so excited. So many books. And, uh, People are reading at home and getting and doing more books now as things have gone on because, you know, uh, online has become harder. Everybody's kind of hunkering down. So uh, I get I'm getting lots of first time readers and and they say the same thing. Uh, They usually go back to the beginning after they've they've read a book or two. But but I really do try because I know that in the airport, there's going to be the latest book. That's it. Mm. They just don't have shelf room for everybody's whole series. That's that's awesome. And I mean, I'm so happy like that Scott found that to be so true for your books. I'll um <laughs> I'll have gone into more detail on this, but I am not a first time reader. <laughs> I am a long time <laughs> reader. Um so it was really, really exciting to get to have a different perspective from him as a longtime reader versus a new reader. That is really cool. Yeah, it's, you know, we do what we can here at Genre Junkies. <laughs> um, Anita is a strong, assertive female character, just like me. Um, <laughs> how does it make you feel when your readers talk to you about how much Anita has inspired them? It, when it first started, uh, low these, when it first started out, I was puzzled by how many people said, you know, she helps me be strong because honestly, uh, my grandmother raised me. There were no men. Mm. And so I was raised, I wasn't raised to be the girl because that wasn't an option. If something heavy had to be lifted, when I got big enough, you're talking to it. It wasn't like we had help from anybody else to go to. So I didn't know that Anita was so strong. I didn't know that was an option to be anything else. It, it took me quite a few years to go, okay, and I understand it now. I love the fact that so many people tell me Anita has inspired them to be stronger and that it's okay to be stronger. It's okay to stand up for themselves. I was not socialized to be, to be the girl, not in any way. I, I, was not, I, was, I was told to, I had to take care of myself. No man was going to come do it for me. And that if I wasn't strong enough to take care of myself and earn my way, then I was out of luck. That was how I was raised. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how Anita is. That's how I am. I honestly did not know there was another option. <laughs> um, and, and, but I meet so many women that 
I really thought we'd be past this, to be honest, mm. but we are still socializing our girls and our boys so differently. Yeah. And, um, and girls are still being socialized to be nice. And I, I love hearing from women saying, you know, I spoke up. I listened to that little voice in the back of my head. I knew it wasn't a good idea. So I said no, because I knew Anita wouldn't do it. Mm. I, I, I've had women that have left abusive relationships and they say it's because they knew Anita wouldn't put up with it. And I, I mean, that is, that is such, such a gift to be able to share strength. And in a way, I get to share my own upbringing. I get to share the strength that I was taught and raised with, with everybody who reads my books. Um, I, you know, I also get, I also get men that also say that Anita's helped them be strong in a different way, that, that, that they're all different kinds of strength. Mm, that and just like gives me chills. <laughs> it, it is a really un, totally unlooked for on my part. And it's been a real gift to be able to share with everybody that, that lesson of strength. That must be why it like rings so true is because it's just what it is. It's just natural. Yes. I yes. that. I uh, I grew up with my grandma for a lot of my years too, so I always like to hear another uh, raised by grandma type of person. And of course, she was old school, old school as well. <laughs> oh yeah, very old school. And uh, uh, and I, I, people's grandmas are not all the same. No. But I I do not think my grandmother ever wore makeup a day in her life. She was raised, you know, in farm country, so she didn't have any time. She had no patience for any of that fall do all stuff that, that, you know, uh, nobody cared what I looked like. It was, could you lift this? Can you do this for me? Mm. Uh, and so I really, I really, you know, people will say, you know, one early interviewer said, you know, I love Anita. She said this off camera. I love Anita, but I bet her clothes are so awful. What made you think to dress her like that? Oh. And in the early books, and this this woman was dressed. This woman was dressed in in very high end clothes, top to bottom. I mean, she looked fabulous. And I I dressed up for the interview, but I just didn't have the heart to tell her that I just would look down at what I was wearing. And Anita would wear that, right? Because <laughs> uh, you know, it didn't occur to me. Um, uh, the more I the more I go out and meet people that are you know, more into fashion and, and more into the whole indoctrination that I didn't get about appearance is so important. The more I realized that I really have no sense of fashion style. I really don't. Oh. And I, 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 and that's not a bad thing. It's just a, it's just a, I just don't think about it. It's, it's just not, I'm going to go, am I covered? Is my <laughs> naked? You know, am I covered? Is everything covered? Is am I wearing shoes appropriate to the day? Can I walk the dogs in these? Can I can I go outside without tripping on something? Is it raining? Are these waterproof? Do I need that? I go over the practical list. That's how I dress. <laughs> and and uh, I, I joke that Jean Claude is the one who taught me how to wear high heels <laughs> because um, I, I couldn't. I didn't know how to wear high heels. I really didn't. And. Uh, writing Jean-Claude with his great fashion sense, he's the one who got me watching fashion TV and things like that, trying to figure out how to dress him. Oh. And and so for, it was for Jean-Claude that I wore the really high heels and learned how to walk in them because I I wanted to know how that feel felt. Um, sometimes I write very much like a, a method actor. Uh. I will get into the clothes of the character and that kind of thing. And so I, it, 
it's, it's only half joking that Jean-Claude taught me how to wear high heels. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, that's an awesome story. <laughs> I've noticed that one of the things when you introduce characters, a lot of times you do describe a lot of what they're wearing. Where do you get the inspiration for those outfits then? Um, I don't think about clothes, but what I've learned is that I do, I can design clothes. I can't sew, but <laughs> I, um, I can look at and put things together. I, I can design clothing. Um, and I didn't know that everybody couldn't do this until so many people asked. I went, Oh no, I do. I get inspiration from different things. And Oh my goodness. Like the, the, I have to say that, that, uh, Instagram is wonderful for visuals. Mm. You can go through and see things, but honestly, by the time I found Instagram to the degree I have now, I, I'd already been dressing him for years. So I really, it really wasn't. In fact, I began to go, they're dressing like Jean-Claude, not the other way around. <laughs> Uh, 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 but I think part of his inspiration came from um, some of the early, uh, early Hammer vampire films, not the Christopher Lee ones, mm -hmm. but like uh, uh, there was one that I saw when I was seven for the first time because Creature Feature Late Hour and my uncle fell asleep who was staying up with all his kids. So, you know, you get to watch anything because no, no adult is awake. Yeah. Um, and I did not see it again until I was in my 20s. Uh -huh. I did not realize, but the, the lead vampire has the long fl fl flowing white shirt and he's got long curly black hair. And I went, oh, gee, geez. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was there in your like early childhood memory, just kind of waiting. Appar apparently so. That that movie went to the back of my subconscious and just waited. <laughs> And you never know. You never know as a child uh, what's going to stay with you and what's not. Mm -hmm. And I've learned this from my own childhood. And now as a as a parent, you never know what's going to make a lasting impression. Um, who, who would know that one viewing of one movie when I was seven was going to come up all those years later and go, oh, here I am. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, but I didn't know that until after I'd written the character. Right. And I saw the movie later and I just went, oh, wow. So that's where at least a seed of his physical appearance comes from. I love that you referenced um, Hammer Horror. I, I love, love me some Hammer Horror. Fantastic. Oh, me too. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I absolutely, I, I love, love, loved it. Well, that actually brings me to a question I've been kind of dying to know for a long time now. Uh, what is your favorite character to write other than Anita, if she is your absolute <laughs> favorite to write? <laughs> Well, she's certainly easiest. Her view, her voice is closest to mine. And after writing her for so long, it's like it, it's just instantaneous. I can like uh, go right into her her voice. Uh, favorite character to write, you know, it's it's, it's really going to depend on the day. Mm. <laughs> um, Edward is one of my favorites to write uh, because he's just fun and cool. Yeah, he's cooler than he's cooler than thou. I'm sorry. <laughs> he he just he just comes in and, and stuff. I love the repartee between them. Um, and um, Jean Claude is is strangely not one of my favorite to write because he he is so far from my voice mm. that sometimes it's hard. And that's one of the reasons I will get into clothes like the feel of silk, the feel of lace will help me kind of channel channel Jean Claude better onto paper. Um, uh, Jason. Jason's one of my f favorite characters to write. He's just fun <laughs> on paper. Uh, so there's so many. I mean, I I am really enjoying um, 
I really enjoy the large cast, though sometimes it's burdensome as a writer because everybody is in my head going, I want to turn. <laughs> I want a paper. And and I'm I'm starting to feel, you know, like a conductor going, Nope, that car is full. <laughs> we cannot have I have to say that there was a couple of books in, in, the, in the middle where I tried to give everybody their way. I tried to give everybody on stage and it's just, it's just too much. You can't do justice to them. So my new rule is that you can be on stage, but if, if you can't be on stage in a meaningful way, you just have to wait. I'm sorry. I can't get everybody on stage and do them justice because there's so many great characters and I want to explore them. Um, but I'm hoping to do more short novels like I did Micah and Jason, but I'm, I'm hoping to do more short novels where some of the characters that are not getting either as much time on stage or they're not getting all their stories told can have side books so that I can explore them without having as much uh, pressure of the main plot of a book pushing at me. Ooh, I like that. That sounds really cool. I'd be down for more of those. So several of your characters are sociopaths and some of your fans, like the one sitting across from me, seem to love and be fascinated by them. Why do you think that is and what makes them so compelling to write? Um, I think one of the things that uh, one of the reasons I started writing so many sociopaths is one, it, it interested me. The other thing is that I truly believe there are a lot more sociopaths out there than than we think, because a lot of people that are sociopaths actually don't know they are because what sociopaths are really, really good at, uh, at least high functioning sociopaths that can blend in, um, is that they think everybody else doesn't feel empathy either. They don't know that it's a thing. So they imitate everybody socially and they can be brilliant at imitating socially because they're just imitating the outward manifestation of it without feeling all the depths of it. But they are sometimes some of the best actors because they have to be because they don't feel the emotions that go with what they're doing. So I, I honestly, the more research I've done, the more I think that there are a lot of people out there that actually are well-behaved, not because they feel empathy, but because they're well-socialized. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make them not sociopaths. They just, this is just how they are. Um, I, was, uh, I was really lucky enough to meet someone who was a sociopath and be able to talk to them at length. And it was very interesting to me because this person's the first person to give you a Kleenex if you're crying, a candy if your mouth is dry. They were very generous. You would never have known, never have known. Um, but their mother's brother was also a sociopath. So she'd grown up with it. And so she saw it at an early age and she was able to explain you're different from most people. And this is why, and this is how you hide it. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was it was fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating, and so fascinating that I knew I would put it on stage. I mm -hmm. knew I had to. And then I also meet other people that, we, we, you know, both Anita and Edward uh, worry about being sociopaths. How far are they? But there are two types. They're born like the first, and then they're made. If you are around enough violence, it's not that you really become a sociopath. That's not really that's not really the phrase. But to my knowledge. There is no phrase for someone that is trained up and then sent out to be around enough violence where they have to fight for their life and they are doing it within the bounds of rules. It's okay to go kill somebody if they're trying to kill you in war. And then you come home and suddenly you're supposed to put the genie back in the bottle. Mm. It, there is just such a disconnect between the two. 
that it, it, it doesn't, it, it actually doesn't puzzle me at all when people have trouble coming back and putting themselves into society because it is just so different. I mean, really polite, normal society is so, is so artificial in some ways compared to the visceral of being in a place where life or death are on the line. That, that, there's no pretense there. You know what you're supposed to be doing and everything. And then you come back here and there are these, all these rules, all these things that bound you around that, that really have nothing to do except we've all agreed on them. Mm. And, um, sociopath because they don't, they, it, it destroys something in you. It doesn't always. Some people come back and they function just fine. Let me just say that. Mm. Several people from the from the special forces community have said, would you please write somebody <laughs> who has this background that isn't a sociopath? Oh. And so I have. That's actually why there are now some uh, some uh, former SEALs and other special forces in the bodyguards uh, in the Anita book who have families and talk about the fact that, that their, their wives and their wives are really happy that they're now working for Jean-Claude uh, and Anita because they get to stay in one place. The money is good. The danger level is fairly low and they get to go home at night. Uh. And one of the reasons they exist is because so many people from special forces said, could you please <laughs> write one person with our background that is an sociopath. And I, and so guys, this one's for you. And that's, that's why we have a lot of former military that are just really regular guys with special, special uh, skill set. And um, that's so sweet. A fan service a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I've been really lucky and how many people who from these kinds of backgrounds have talked to me over the years and told me stuff that, that didn't go in the books, of course, but just to background, had I not talked to real police officers, had I not talked to real military, Anita would not have had the trajectory of a character that she did because I wouldn't have known to, to give it to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's the equivalent of about a 10, about 10 years in between 10 and 15 years in most police officers get to the point where they know where they know they're not going to be able to save the world anymore. Mm-hmm. They know that that's not how it works. And you just get to where you want to go home to the people you love at the end of the day. And if you get out alive and, and get to go home, then that's, that's your victory. And, and, uh, but soci, but I, I am fascinated with the fact that, that someone who was sociopath could fit in so well and not be, you wouldn't pick them out because they, they just, they just imitate what they see really, really well. And then you have, of course, uh, characters, you know, Edward, Edward is the perfect actor. Now, most people from his background or not, he really could, you know, Oscar winner winning performance there for him between his alter ego, uh, you know, Ted Forrester, U.S. Marshal and and Edward uh, assassin to anything that's more dangerous than he is. But uh, I I love Edward and his growth as a character because honestly, he was created as sort of a bad guy. I had no idea that he would become Anita's best friend. I had no idea that that he had that kind of growth in him is a character. Um, so uh, I love, and, and Edward's one of those characters that goes off, does his own thing and then shows up with it done. Hmm. I don't even know what he's doing. He just comes and goes, this is what I just did. Oh, what really? Oh shit. Um, <laughs> like, like uh, I did not know he had gotten engaged to anybody until like one page below Anita coming down the escalator in the airport and meeting Donna. Oh my! And then God. we both, and then we both went, Oh we, I mean, it was just like my my mind was blown. It's like this can't be real. 
Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that so much. And uh, well, Edward is my favorite character in the series. So I I love that he is still surprising you throughout the books too. That little devil. Oh oh my God. Edward surprises me a lot. Um, Edward's always been like that. He's been one of the characters that goes off, does his own thing, comes back and it's a done deal. Yeah. He doesn't ask my permission. (laughs) He doesn't (laughs) debate. He's just like, this is what I've been doing while I've been gone. How are you? Ah! Oh, I love it. And that actually, um, that brings me to our next question too. You kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, in this book, um, especially, Anita talks about the importance of mental health and therapy. Is that a message that you're kind of trying to convey to readers these days? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I started, it started with, it started with Nathaniel uh, going into therapy. And talking about his time where he was, you know, he was a runaway and he got on the streets and he was addicted to drugs and he got clean because the wear leopards wouldn't let him in unless he got off drugs. Mm-hmm. And then even after he became that, he was still not healthy, not. And he's been going to therapy and getting better and finding a happiness that works for him. And I have so many readers, so many readers that have said that Nathaniel going to therapy had led them to go to therapy themselves. Mm. That Nathaniel had gotten uh, clean and stayed clean had helped their sobriety. Mm. I, and, and once I heard that from the fans, I thought, you know, I'm a big believer in therapy. I've been in therapy um, off and on since my 20s. I honestly, you know, everybody says, oh, I wish I was in my 20s again. Why? Do you not remember what it was like? Amen. I barely survived my 20s. Why would I want to go back? Uh, if, if you're lucky, somewhere in your 30s, you begin to figure out who and what you are. And somewhere in your 40s, if you've done your work, then suddenly you, you're you. You settle in. 40s is was my favorite decade. Um, and so... You know, you begin to fill out your owner's manual each decade. Uh, And I love it. I love knowing myself more. I love not sitting around going, I have no idea what's going on. And you have to fake it because you're a grown up. And and nobody tells you how to be a grown up. No. Uh, There are so few rules. I mean, I am glad that things have moved on. I really am. The more research into the past I I do, especially as a woman. But at the same time, I think we've thrown the baby out with the bath, bath water. And we have reached this thing where instead of black and white, everything's gray. And, uh, you know, a little bit of like, here's how you be a grown up. Here's what you do. These are the things you do. These are the things you don't do. If we could all agree on it, but of course we can't. Um, you know, that's I, like uh, a friend was talking to her daughter and about a boy she was seeing in high school. This is before this is last year mm-hmm. and <clears throat> said, um, said, oh, you're going steady. And she says, what? <laughs> she didn't know what going steady was. She says, well, that's when you're exclusive to each other. And they usually exchange a pen or you did your classroom and, and you knew, you know, you weren't engaged, but you were steady. You were each other's. And it was, you know, and she says, and her daughter says, that would be so great. Oh, I wish we had something like that. <laughs> uh, and because, you know, um, because I'm, um, because I'm polyamorous, that means that I've dated across the decades, much more than most people. Mm-hmm. And may I say that that people in their 20s and 30s now, it's it's much harder today. It's easier to hook up than it was when, you know, uh, I was there. I was in college and just out of college. 
But it is it is much harder to date, I think now, especially if you want a permanent relationship, because there are so few rules yeah. of how to do it. Right. No, that's a really good point, actually. I really feel for people in the in the younger decades mm. because it is it is there are fewer rules and though on one hand it's free on the other hand it's confusing right and uh, and because there are no rules you don't know what rules the other person's using so if you're talking to your 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 kids and and trying to tell them how you dated uh, it has changed a great deal mm. and the the advice may not be as good as you think it is <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of the wild west out there as to how people are doing it Speaking of how much things have changed, Anita struggles through the book to come to grips with new terminology for the um, supernatural creatures in the book. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yes, I did the new terminology for Anita. I decided that uh, I would do a politically correct speech for this Anita book. <laughs> and because lycanthropy really just means, technically, it just means being a werewolf. It's just wolf-based lycanthropy. That's it. So somebody decided somewhere that you needed to be socially correct and have a term that is for all of the rare animals. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I did have a lot of fun coming up with different names. And I thought, is there a term uh, that means shape changing in general? And by golly, there is. (laughs) It is theranthropy. T-H-E-R-I-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y. They're not for They're an op. <laughs> I can barely pronounce it. <laughs> it does not roll <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, it's a tongue twister. It's much harder to say. It's harder to spell. And but, but it does encompass all turning of shape from human to animal. It does cover it all. And you get to hear the words uh, for cat lycanthropy, which... And, and you have to use it correctly. And, and people, Anita's already gotten written up once by another marshal because she didn't use the new nomenclature, um, for the correct terms. <laughs> uh, it, it is, it, it was, it was fun to go back and forth and have Anita, who's very old school, trying to remember all the new, uh, socially conscious vocabulary. And, yeah. you know, uh, even, even some of the other marshals uh, go back and forth with it and by form for, you know, you, you can't say where you can't say Wolfman mm. or leopard man. That's for sexist. Right. And so to be gender neutral, it's, it's by form is one of the alternatives uh, to that they're saying now a new polite term for, for half man, half, half beast. Uh, form. And it was, it was, uh, it, it was really fun, and one of the things that led me to do it um, was the fact that that we are trying to redo our vocabulary, socially conscious. Um, it, I, I was kind of a little ahead of the curve. I, I did not know how much our vocabulary we would have to be changing and watching, and so it was really fun to do it on paper. And also, uh, you know, Anita's just having to change with the times, so are the other marshals. Mm because you don't want to see it be sexist and you don't want to be speciest. <laughs> I mean, I guess speciest is the word. Spe- so, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's about right. <laughs> it was, it was very fun to have her go back and forth. It is really fun to watch her um, change and adapt to the current times as a longtime reader. So that was super, super enjoyable. Um, 
it's kind of a silly question, but I just wanted to know if you could have any of your characters' supernatural abilities, such as vampirism, shape-shifting, reanimating, etc., uh, what would you pick and why? I wouldn't be a vampire. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be a vampire because uh, miss, I would miss daylight too much. Mm. And, um, and I don't know, I would miss food. I miss, I, I miss being able to eat and, and, and uh, I hope to do more of that on stage where Anita can, you know, where Jean-Claude can taste through other people. And we also haven't gotten to show that, that Damien has also gained that ability through, uh, through, through uh, Nathaniel and, and Anita. So um, I, I write about the fact of how much they miss, you know, food and drinking wine and things like that. So it had to be some kind of shapeshifter. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, because I write so much about Nathaniel and Micah and if I lived in a world where I wouldn't be hunted down with guns uh, because I changed to an animal, I would go with were leopard. If I had to adapt to an animal that might possibly be not reported to the police, if I ran around the neighborhood, it would have to be a wolf because most people don't know the difference between a coyote and a wolf. <laughs> That's true. Most, most people don't. It's the closest I could come to blending into my environment, quote unquote. And we definitely have nothing that looks like a leopard around here in St. Louis. Uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, we get an occasional cougar sighting within 40 miles or so of me, probably a juvenile uh, going out looking for its own territory. But um, uh, so if I had to blend in, it would have to be werewolf because I would pretend I was a coyote. But uh, and the coyotes around here would go, oh, hell, we're out of here. <laughs> we're out. Um, you smell that we're gone. It will eat us. Uh, but if, if it was just, um, I don't know, it would be one of probably, uh, one of the cat lycanthropes. Uh, there are not other than werewolves. though, there aren't a lot of dog based lycanthropes. Um, well, well, one, because wolves are, are pretty much it. Some kind of wolf is the pinnacle of, of canine, uh, predator. True. And, you know, every place you go in the world, if they, you know, haven't hunted them to extinction, there is a large predatory cat of some kind. So no so, chance of werepugs. No. <laughs> no. Well, that was clearly Scott's choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of the most of the shape-shifting to dogs is actually not a type of disease from the folklore that I can find. And it's not a witness. Some witches will turn into dogs, but that's rare. They usually do cats or rabbits in Scotland. But uh, dogs are usually an inherited form of lycanthropy or shape-shifting. And um, they are uh, guardians, like family guardians. Most of the dogs that I could go back to. Now, spectral dogs, totally different animal. <laughs> no pun intended. They are more uh, almost haunting. And they also can be uh, family guardians over the centuries, or they guard a certain piece of road or whatever. Uh, usually they're black with blazing eyes or something. And uh, then, of course, the wild hunt has the dogs, the spectral hounds. But that's more Mary than Anita. <laughs> True. <laughs> so you've been writing Anita for a long time. But before all of that, what's the first story you ever remember writing? Complete, completed, beginning to end. Maybe even maybe even kid. before that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, my first attempts at stories, um, I was I tried to imitate uh, Louisa May Alcott, like Little Women, Little Men, They Eight Cousins, and people go really. Um, 
the, uh, uh, you know, Louise May Alcott, they're surprised by that. And I say, well, she was the first woman that I read that I found through a biography in the library that had read, supported her entire family, her extended family, and from her writing. And just knowing that a woman in that time period could do that made me admire her even more. I would not find out until uh, decades later that she actually wrote ghost stories and horror stories and made some of her money before the, the more homey stories took off uh, writing for Pulp Fiction magazines, so which I love. So my early attempts were, you know, attempts like that, very uh, Louise May Alcott, Baby Island, that kind of thing. And then I walked into a drugstore grocery store combo near near my home where I was raised, and they had on the little turn turn wire turntable where the paperbacks were thing. Uh, they had a short story collection called Pigeons from Hell by uh, Robert E. Howard, short story by Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan, which I had never heard of at that time. And it was the first uh, dark fantasy, heroic fantasy and horror uh, I'd ever read. I was like 13 or 14. Uh, it was the first outright that kind of dark stuff that I'd ever read. And from the moment I read those short stories, I, as a writer, knew that not only did I want to be a writer for sure, but I wanted to write this. Mm-hmm. I I wanted to write I wanted to write horror. I wanted to write you know sword and sorcery. This is what I wanted to write. And so before I was fifteen, so the year I was fourteen, I finished my first short story after reading this. And I also found Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Andre Norton for science fiction. And, you know, this was my gateway drug or my gateway whatever to the genres. And so at 14, I finished my first story beginning to end. It was it was completely horror, completely like almost splatterpunk. Um it was a, it was a family and a monster killed everybody. The only person that survived was the baby who crawled off into the forest with the implication that she would never be found and she would die. And that was the first story I ever finished. Everyone died. It was a complete bloodbath. And one of the best things that my uh, my uncle uh, Uncle Monk did for me is a is a writer and an artist is he read the story and he didn't. He didn't tell me I needed a psychiatrist. He just patted me on the head and said, that's really good. And <laughs> it, it could have gone so much more pear-shaped. You know, you, send, you, you show other parents that kind of story. They go, oh, my God, what have we done wrong? <laughs> but, uh, but my family just took it in stride and patted me on the head and said, that's good. And, and because they didn't tell me it was horrible, I was able to continue to pursue and write the dark stories. And... Um, uh, horror, straight horror for, for years. Uh, by 15, I was writing vampire. I wrote my first vampire story. Um, by, and by 17, I was submitting, uh, short stories to professional publications to try to get them published. And back then before the internet, I was using writer's digest writers, uh, in the writer to get addresses and things to send out. And that helped teach me how to do it professionally. Um, I had a wonderful teacher um, in high school whose name I have now blanked on for the love of God. Oh, that's um, all right. But she, she went, you know how the library would get rid of magazines like for a penny a pop. 
when they rather than throw them out, well, she got back copies of the writer and writer's digest and she brought me an armload. And that was how I learned what I needed to do professionally. And may I just say that I realized decades later, she may have meant for me to use them and bring them back for other students, but I didn't take it that way. (laughs) And she didn't have the heart to ask for them back. Bless her heart. So either way, you know, really, she, she, and I, that's why I'm upset. I can't, I'm blanking on the name. It's, um, ah, I don't want to give the wrong name because that's what I think, that's what I think I will do. I think I'm, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm really bad on names. Always have been. I'm good on faces. Mm-hmm. I'm good on remembering details of physicality and things, uh, fa- face, hair. If you change your hair, I will not know you the next time I see you. Let me just say <laughs> If you if you cut it too short, if you cut it short or grow it really long or, or color it differently or even a haircut that's too extreme from the last time I saw you, I will not know you until you reintroduce yourself to me. Oh, my gosh. Scott is feeling very seen. That's you guys have that, that same. Is, that very, very much uh, am that. <laughs> it is, and, and, and it's 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 embarrassing. It's embarrassing, especially if it's somebody that you should know. And they're talking to you and as somebody, okay, I'm on the back of my book. So people will come up and talk to me that I really don't know. Right. And, and if they talk to me in a familiar enough term, I know I do this. So I'll talk to them for a while because I don't know if I know them and they just changed their hair. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, so great. I love it. Um, we're living in this strange pandemic era. How has it affected your creativity and writing process? Um, well, initially, I just I finished Sucker Punch just before lockdown, like a week, week and a half before lockdown. And so uh, I'd been in some ways sequestered for months doing the book. But I finally finished it enough to send to a draft to send to New York. And then about a week later or so, we were in lockdown. We ed- I edited this book um, while all the beginning of this stuff was going on. And this was before uh, the tragedy of George Floyd. This is before the protests, all of it. So the editing was done and it was a done deal before the year got even weirder and more awful. Um, so uh, the big change on the editing was for my, I think my editor and my, ma- and my managing editor probably had more of a, a problem in that because they could no longer be at their job. They couldn't go into the publishing house because it's closed. It was, it was, they couldn't go in. They still can't go in because hmm. it's in New York. And working from home, working remotely, thank God for technology. But for them, I'm, I'm pretty sure they had a harder time. At least I was still in my office, still where I normally work. And they were on their own, just isolated at home. They didn't have the rest of the staff. They didn't have all the things around them that they normally do. <clears throat> so I would think the editing process was probably harder and more weird on them <laughs> than on me. Um, after that, then after I didn't have emails and people calling me and texting me so that that got my attention, then I tried to go back to writing. And that was when the news and everything else really messed with me. I had trouble focusing. I had trouble carrying through and, you know, I think we've all gone, we're all doing the grief process together. We're grieving what, not just what's happening in the news, but we are grieving what our ordinary lives were like. 
And whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, it is a change, and change is perceived by most of us. And in fact, we're all hardwired that change equals grief. Mm. That you, you, that's why so many people will stay in a bad situation because change is actually sometimes more painful initially than a positive change. Uh, our, our minds still perceive it is, is negative. Um, a lot of theories on that. Uh, one is that any change in your environment back when our ancestors were, 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 you know, huddling around a fire at night and sharpening sticks rather than anything else to save them from the, you know, things that would eat them, that change in your environment usually equaled danger. So we're still hardwired as if, you know, the tiger is going to jump out and eat us even in suburbia. And so any change kind of hits that visceral level. Uh, I had to make a rule. The rule is this. I do not get on the Internet. I do not get online. I do not check the news. I do not. The only thing I'm allowed to check before I go to my desk is the weather. (laughs) That's it. The weather. Um, And because it messes with me. There's no way to look at these headlines and over these last few months and then sit down and get into a, a mindset to create. There's just no way to do it. So I had to really be strict with myself and go, nope, have you made pages today? Then you cannot get online yeah. uh, and you cannot check the news. You, you just can't. Uh, it, it's because it's 24 seven, 365. I mean, I mean, it never stops. Thanks to the internet, there's always news. And thanks to the, thanks to the more global news, there's always something wrong somewhere. It, it's, it's insane. You, you, you can't touch a break. Even when things are normal, it's hard. But during this, absolutely not. Just, just stay, stay off of it. Stay away from it. There's nothing I can do. It doesn't, if I had a regular job that, that supported my family, because my job supports my entire family, mm-hmm. you know, this is what pays my, for my daughter to go to college, that whole thing. If I had a regular job, I wouldn't get on the news and let that stop me from working. The difference is that if I had a regular job, I'd probably go into see people. I would have people asking me to do my job. I would have customers. I would have other work people. I would have other people to help me focus on the job at hand. As a writer, you go into your office by yourself and there's nothing but you to discipline yourself. There's nothing but you and your personal demons and your muse to duke it out. And if you bring in the outside world too much, then it fuels the negative side to the point where there's no way to work past it. So yeah, the big thing is that I've even gotten more offline. Um, as the book has come closer, uh, you know, I've gotten more on Twitter and started some threads uh, asking about characters and stuff. Um, what's their favorite character and thing? Because I am going to do more of the smaller novels. And and it's been interesting to see that the people that I had decided needed small novels to themselves are a lot of the same people that, that, that the fans are asking for and saying they would like to see them get more stage time, which has been very fun. But, yeah, that's the big thing. Um I really am trying to ivory tower myself once I step into my office, even more than I normally do, because otherwise it's very hard to create and and do my job. As a writer, one of the weird things about my job is that is that I take I don't even know if it's just inspiration, but it's like as as a writer, you soak up things around you and you never know what's going to hit you just right or wrong or spark an idea or whatever. 
um, people says, where are you writing? Is this in your books? I'm going, well, I, it's too soon. It's too soon. I'm not a nonfiction writer. I'm a fiction writer. So this year will go and it will perk through my subconscious. I've got one short story idea that may come sooner. And if I do do that one, it will be directly from this year. But I've got to let it it sift through and make sure that I'm it's a short story and not just my emotion on paper because people are putting enough emotion out there. I do not need to add to that. Mm. Well, I have something to kind of bring up the mood about your ivory tower, as you called it, in your office. We love to visualize people's workspaces when they're creating. What is your favorite item that you keep in your office? Oh, God, one favorite? <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or talk about just how, how, you, how you build your office to surround yourself with things that inspire you and make you happy. Um, well, okay. My most favorite thing for working is a good view, mm. either expanse of green or I, you know, I keep swearing I'm going to, you know, we, we've gone to the ocean and I've written a couple of books with the ocean as my view. And that's my favorite view to write to mountains, a good view. But having said that on days that I'm having trouble concentrating, I have one uh, computer. My main computer looks at a wall because on days when my concentration is not good, I can't even look outside and write because I go, ooh, bird, ooh. And, and I cannot, if the concentration is bad, if somebody just walks past my view, I'm thrown out of my book. So um, I need one blank wall <laughs> and then I need one view. And depending on my level of concentration, I will go back and forth. I am blessed and I've worked really hard to have an office that I was able to help the architect design. I, I had input on it. And I partially based my office on pictures of Roger Tory Peterson's uh, artist studio. I don't have his lake out here, but, <laughs> but I have skylights that have shades that can come and go uh, up and down with a push of a button, which is fabulous. I have skylights. This, I, I like a lot of light. Everybody, you know, so many people, so many fans think I write in the dungeon and stuff. No, no, I like light. I'm an, I, I'm, I'm a hawk. I want to be on top of everything. I want to have the best view possible. I want to see as many miles around as I can. I like to see people coming. <laughs> and I want as much light as possible. That's really, that's really, a, I, I'm kind of a light junkie when I create. Now, if the muse is running good and hard, I can write anywhere. I really can. But but to get into that mindset, to slip into that mindset, light view, uh, I write really well around blue or green walls. And um, that may be because the my childhood bedroom was pale blue. So I write well around the color that I was originally raised, the first place I learned to read, the first place I wrote ever was this blue, had blue walls. And so I really do pay attention to the color uh, of my surroundings. I write better. I, I write tremendously better in a pale blue room. Because I've lived in places you rented where you couldn't choose the color. <laughs> and it, it really does, it really does impact me. So for me, for me, it is, it is, I, I need at least two things, a blank wall and a view if possible. But, um, favorite thing, I, I, I am, I'm a cluttery kind of person. 
which means I like Kishti. Uh, I, I like I like Chotsky's. Ch- Ch- yes. I like I like, um, I like stones and crystals and pretty things and shiny things. And I'm a big fan of um, of like little statues and little stone animals. So um, it is it is not a uh, a neat process. I I'm I am those people, but I know what's in all my stacks. The only time I feel like I have to clean my office is when I look around at the stacks on my desk and I don't know what's in them. <laughs> if I've lost track of what's in the stacks, then it's time to clean. Up to that point, I know where everything is. Don't touch my stuff. <laughs> I love that's the litmus test. So this is, I have to tell you, this is absolutely hilarious because you and Scott are sounding like the same person more and more with like everything you say. Like, it is so funny. You guys are cut from the same cloth. Well, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I take that. I take it as a compliment. Yes. You know, we, 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 uh, I don't know. Maybe it is. You know, we we both don't do faces well. I mean, we know faces, but if you change the outer appearance, you know, there actually could. The more studies I do in how how the mind truly works, neuro neuroscience, um, I actually am beginning to believe that certain characteristics like that really do go together. Yeah. Well, and obviously, you guys are my type of people because I adore you both. So this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, we are going to go ahead and let you go. But thank you so, so much for joining us. We are humbled. It has been an absolute honor. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sandra. Thank you so much, Scott. It, it has been really fun uh, to to be on with you and uh, and and just and just talk and uh, share uh, via via this wonderful technology. <laughs> Welcome to the spoiler section. Who? Okay. Let's get into this book. I, I'm 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 excited because I had a lot of fun with it. I have hey. a lot of things to say about it too. <laughs> that sounds ominous. It's not ominous at all. Okay. I, you know, when being dropped in the middle of a series like this, you know, not having had conversations about it for what, 20 years? Yeah. I, you know. I feel like there's so much stuff that I have to like get off my chest and discuss with people. <laughs> you know, you you you've got you've gotten to go through that for so long. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah, I've had a lot of friends that have read these books and and we've talked about them over the years and yeah, no, it's very true. Um well, I I don't know. I feel like I should let you start. Well, okay. First of all, I love Anita Blake. I was not expecting her to be the I don't I don't know what I was expecting with her honestly. I, Maybe you had no expectations. I, Maybe that's was good. I didn't really have expectations. I guess like I said, reading through some of the Wikipedia things, I feel like was a mistake. I had mm. this I had this um image in my head of this this image that I had was uh you know, a shallow badass maybe a little bit vapid but strong <gasps> character. That that's the way that it kind of made her sound. Oh no. That is not what she is. She is no. incredibly smart, incredibly vulnerable, mm. um but just 
absolutely so good at her job. She's a complete, complete badass, and she is good at her job. And she's good at working the cases and all that cool stuff that you want in this kind of detective-y, you know, sort of novel. Um, And she's just an absolute badass, very capable. And now she has all of these enhanced kind of supernatural abilities, too, which just makes her character even richer as the years have gone on. I appreciate that 27 books in, she's still able to introduce a a, um, uh, a moral dilemma. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, like, this book, 27 books in, is still introducing new lore to the world, new questions on how things work, as well as introducing new moral quandaries to Anita, and, and where she has to ask herself, is she doing the right thing? Absolutely, because we have this whole issue with the warrant of execution and you know how she and newman and everybody are supposed to handle this um and that's i mean it's it's kind of some stuff that's uncharted territory and anita talks about that in here and kind of speaking on keeping it fresh too we brought this up in the interview and i really really applaud her for putting in some nods to mental health and the importance of mental health uh, with the characters in this book, the males and the females alike, the the tough, badass people, you know, being like, hey, it's okay to have feelings and to have to work through things. Um, really cool. We're all about normalizing mental health. And it's really nice to see that Anita is still in therapy and still working on herself, too. The writing is incredibly emotionally mature. Yes. The characters are not necessarily emotionally mature. Sure. But it's approached from a from a from a level where the author is clearly um very experienced in in navigating some of these these questions and these emotions. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's okay that we're feeling things with her and, you know, kind of going through all all those emotions with her makes her very relatable um i had forgotten how much i love the woman for the amount of cursing um i feel so seen so seen because we all know that i curse just very naturally it's not me trying to sound any sort of way i'm just a salty old sailor and, so isn't, <laughs> and isn't it good news that they're swearing in the interview so that this yeah. is an explicit episode and you can say whatever you want? Yes, I love it. I love it. So I, I want to talk about all of the characters that are in this book, because that is the one thing that there was a little bit of me feeling a, a little over my head. <laughs> I I definitely felt for Duke. Because <laughs> okay, so obviously Duke is not a series regular. There's some other characters in here yeah. that that aren't part of the series. So so here's this this sheriff, and he has a, a basically a murder suspect who is supposed to be executed. He can't do it, so you know they call in the marshals, uh, and then the marshal calls in another marshal who calls in somebody else, and eventually there's just this this clown car of yeah. where animals entering this town. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden. Th- the population is tripled because of all of her friends that have showed up to help her out. Well, the coalition. And, well, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm being a little funny about it. It made sense. And it was a lot of fun to introduce all that different, all of that different character dynamic. Yes. And it's an especially important when it gets to the point when she's, 
you know, communicating with Olaf, uh, you know, about her sexual desires with a lot of her other partners. I want to talk about that scene. My point is there was a lot of, there was a lot of introduction of characters that I wanted to know more about. And I, I feel, I, I did not feel any emotional attachment to because they didn't have a lot to do. Well, not in this book, but oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of like, I, I think the idea and I hope the idea is that they caught your attention and you want to know more. They were just, um, they had something to do in this story, but they like a lot of the ancillary characters in Anita's life are not a huge part of this particular story to be told. I, I appreciate something that, that Laurel said in our interview about the characters wanting to be on stage and her basically having to tell him, no, tell tell them, no, this is not your time. There's yes. not enough room in the car. There is so many points in this book. As soon as she said it, I realized where they have to be driving in a car and only so many people can fit in the car. Or Duke says, hey, they do not have badges. They are not police. They cannot be involved in this investigation. Yeah. They can't be in this scene. And I thought that was really smart. It was almost like... And in hindsight, very yeah. funny. It's almost like Duke was helping her control all these characters. And there, LeDuke Duke is an interesting character. He is a bit of a bigot. Um, but at the same time, I was able to have empathy for him, which I appreciate. It was a really cool way that she wrote him like that yeah i liked duke a lot because there were definitely a lot of points when you just really disliked him oh pissed me off so bad but i actually do believe just like anita kind of uh suspected that we were not seeing him on his best day i think so too and that's always important and an, and an exercise in compassion for us all <laughs> to think about the situations we meet people in so I do kind of like, I want to kind of jump to that, like a little bit of the relationship stuff. So Olaf is one of my favorite characters in the series. Another sociopath. Another sociopath. He's no, he's no Ted, but I like him. Um, <laughs> no Edward, Ed, Ted, you know, yeah, you know, you're in the spoiler section. So you know what we're talking about. But um, he is fascinating. And I love that he is a fan favorite because I mean I he's so bad and problematic and not a good person and now he's also part lion <laughs> but um I find him un endingly fascinating and i just love reading the books where he shows up in it um but i mean for a girl like me that's not too surprising but i love that all these other fans are like yeah more olaf and she's like oh okay <laughs> it's interesting to me the way that he was introduced in this book because i really disliked him from the very beginning and i was yes, he, fearful yeah. of him from yeah. the very beginning oh yeah and i still do don't know how I feel about where I feel like their relationship is going because he seems, even though he's trying so hard and apparently his word truly is that good. Yes. Um, he's so, I don't want to say evil because the, the hard part about him is, is because he does not have the capability of having those, like seeing the moral, the, 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 he doesn't have empathy for other people. He doesn't right. have that capability. So I, I, evil's kind of not really a term that fits him. Um, 
here's the thing is sometimes, sometimes in books, children, um, sometimes in books, people, characters, situations are problematic. They're weird. They're troubling. There's something that you would not engage in or promote in real life. And everybody has to find their comfort level with characters and plots and situations like that. For me, I know all those things about Olaf, and I still really adore reading about the character. And I'm just kind of strapped in and down for the ride of wherever it takes us. But it's important to remember is sometimes you have to suspend the disbelief. Oh, certainly. And and enjoy the ride. And just because there is a lot of, like in this novel is a great example, there's a lot of wonderful high points of morality and ethics. Doesn't mean that everything has to be perfectly clean cut am i making yeah, sense yes. like with what i'm saying i do yeah. relationships uh emotions are messy yes and and nothing is perfect and he is far from perfect he is right. very very far from perfect but he is um magnetic he's interesting oh definitely and That attraction is obvious. And now we have this side to his character since he's become a lion where he has something that he can give Anita that is beneficial. And that doesn't mean that like all of a sudden it's like, wow, Olaf, all your sins are forgiven. Like, and I don't think that anybody has painted it that way. Everybody is really aware of how problematic he is. But again, this is not a situation that anybody's ever going to run into in real life. So it's okay. It's okay to have a little bit of a a time with it and enjoy the journey. And at the ending of the book, when it's clear that he is, he's killed jocelyn that's great you know at first i'm thinking <laughs> myself great. oh well okay he he does care about something he does actually have a sense of justice and then i and then i kind of thought about it. i was like well no he doesn't he's just kind of like a house cat bringing the mouse that they just killed yeah. to their to their to their person's feet like hey i did this for you Blech, there's the mouse <laughs> yeah no because like he has his you know they've imposed these sets of rules on him for whom he can kill and stuff this is one of those cases where he kind of goes out on a high note for you because everybody loves a little stab of vigilante justice when we know that somebody really really done wrong and oh my god i was seething at jocelyn i was seething at that character and i was like oh my god somebody needs to just take her out and thank god olaf was was there Um, let's jump into a little bit of the relationship stuff. So this book was not as heavy on the sexy erotic times as some of the other ones were. There's a lot of sensuality in this book, which sometimes her books are more about the sensuality than like um, depictions of like people actually having sex. Um, so just you know, know that. I guess we all know that here in the spoiler section. So there is, there is more graphic sex in some of the other books yes okay (laughs) (laughs) for sure um so that scene in the hotel room was like my favorite (laughs) scene in the book um it was at times funny it was at times intense it was just it was all over the place in the best possible way 
Anita's absolute humiliation, <laughs> but like it, not in a way where you felt anybody was like bullying or berating her. They were but were supporting her. Yeah, and her inner dialogue was just completely like kill me (laughs) like i it was so such a great example of all of that stuff in her writing playing off of each other it's a balancing act because they're all talking about her in in a way almost like she's not there but they're doing it to support her this is a conversation that that she needs to be having that that they need to be having and she has this support group around her who know her yeah. and are helping her have that conversation that she is way too uncomfortable to be having in that moment that's it exactly and these are all people that love her and care about her and um they get into talking about kink a little bit cuz that is a part of the books as she probably picked up a part of the erotica is kind of like a little bit kinky BDSM type of stuff, um, which is much more interesting than just two hetero characters just boringly going at it. I mean, any day of the week. I, I love I love the them trying to define vanilla sex. Oh my god, that was so <laughs> funny. It's like, I don't I don't know if you know what my version of vanilla sex is, so we should probably define that. Oh my gosh, it was so, so perfect. And kind of not even on the sex side, there was a, a part that I highlighted that just really touched me. And it's when she's it's near the beginning of the book. And she says, I was marrying Jean-Claude and Micah was marrying Nathaniel. They would be my intended forever and I would be theirs. We would intend to marry one indefinitely while we waited for the law to catch up with our hearts. And that is like... It's just so sweet. And there's lots of depictions of how her poly group um, and her, her people, how much they love and care for each other. And it's just really, it was just really, really sweet. So I I have had some experience with polyamorous people. Oh, and, yeah. We do know people yes. who are polyamorous. Yes. And, and I think that the idea of that is, is, you know, the idea of that when it's pure and when it's, um, and when it's practiced is actually very beautiful yes. and, and is, you know, a, a wonderful thing for a lot of people. Not for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's <laughs> because that's everyone okay. is different. Yes, um, but when it's done right, when it's done honestly and truthfully, it's beautiful. It really is. Well, of course, it's. I think that's exactly what she's trying to say. Is it's just like monogamy is. You know, it's a it's a beautiful thing, <laughs> and it it makes these characters a lot more interesting, and it makes um the stakes a lot higher in some cases because there is you know multiple hearts and feelings involved. Um, so that's really really interesting stuff too. So there's some great like I mentioned the kind of that vigilante thing. There's uh, some great stuff where she talks about. And I highlighted them, you know, with like people not getting their justice, not getting, you know, served how they needed to be. And I appreciated that. It's a little bit of kind of a a real world check in at points, too. And that just makes all of those, you know, makes you feel much more passionate for Anita and everybody trying to do the the real right thing by Bobby. Yeah, we've talked a lot about a lot about the relationships, but the plot itself is really exciting. I I was I was left guessing the entire time and not and not because it was obtuse. Like I definitely had some guesses and 
I don't know, about three quarters of the way through, I felt, I, I guessed right on, on who was involved in Yeah. We, we, we had were, a little yeah. conversation. We had a little conversation. We were definitely on the same page um, with kind of cracking this mystery. And that's, I mean, you know, that's not because it's a poorly written mystery. It's just because Scott and I have read so much mystery in our lives that we're good at slussing out clues and motivations. It was a, it was a good mystery. That's a sign, in my opinion, of a good mystery. Yes. If you can, if you are able, you don't, you don't necessarily have to, but if you're able to put the pieces together before the reveal, yeah. I think that that is a satisfying mystery. Well, because it was when crafted it, then. Yes, yeah. exactly. And with like them leaving clues for us and the detectives to solve along with each other. Um, and that's, yeah, no, that's important because they have to be written in such a way that they're subtle or, you know, you kind of catch somebody lying or whatever the, the situation is. And, you know, when Rico was just so sullen and really just like he was involved when when the aunt and uncle broke into the house, they called him to see if there was a deer up in the tree and he probably looked and saw that it was there and hit it. Yeah. You know, I was like, something's up with that dude. Yeah, there was some, I mean, there was stuff about him from the beginning that raises your hackles a little bit and then it just kind of keeps, yeah, going and going and going. Um, we kind of talked about it just a second ago. And I, I do want to circle back around to it, the justice for Bobby. And Bobby as a character, you know, just being someone that you feel a lot of sympathy for. And that was, I mean, it was hard. It was hard some, to read some of the stuff he was going through, wasn't it? It was a little, it was heart-wrenching. It was. I, I really wanted Bobby to survive. I was, I was terrified for him. I was sad for him because he was just so heartbroken and his range of emotions when, when, you know, at first he thought it was him yeah, and then he started to believe it wasn't him, but he was still just so desperately afraid that he was going to die well and he's the he's the only shifter around for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and everybody knows that he's a you know that he's leopard and everything and there's something about that that's like makes you feel already compassion for him because he's an outsider and that he is living in this small town and in this area where you know everybody knows everybody and everybody's in each other's business and he has this thing about him that makes him really different from everyone else and it's something it's something he can't control it's something that just is who he is and i was kind of torn on how i felt the way that his family even treated him. Oh, yeah. I mean, outside of, you know, <laughs> well, Jocelyn. Now we, well, now but, we know that Jocelyn was working him for years, yeah. but yeah. But the, the way he was kind of treated like a house cat. Well, he even says, like, in the pictures, I look like the family dog, right? Yeah. he's He wasn't... Uh, it's like he was never... Mm, fully fully into it because i don't know like i don't question at all that his uncle ray loved him dearly and did the and did the best that he could and you know maybe that's the best way to embrace the the leopard that's inside of him is is when the leopard is forward is is that's the best way they knew how to treat 
Yeah. To, to treat him as as family. Well, there's but, no excuse for Jocelyn. She's not no. included in this conversation. But, but something about that just seemed... Sad? Just, yeah. Yeah, you feel pity. You feel empathy. You feel, you feel sad. I mean, it's, you know, his leopard, well, you know, it, he's quote unquote not that powerful. His leopard is this strong, beautiful creature that's been reduced to a house cat. It, it just, something about that just made me feel very sad for him. He was just never able to be fully strong. Yeah, to be fully himself. And I mean, obviously, that can be applied to, I think a lot of people have felt that way about many different aspects of themselves in their family life. And I think that people could really see themselves in that character then and kind of being ostracized. Um and especially, you know, it's like we all know from the beginning as the reader, we know that Bobby didn't do this. We know it. I mean, I did anyway. I was like, he totally did not do this. I was, I felt pretty sure, but I was not, I was not not expecting a twist where he was really behind it all. I was thinking there's a possibility that this could be him and Jocelyn together. And he just got it kind of got swept up in it somehow. But then again, he was the one who was caught. So I felt like... Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. he's the red herring kind of... I mean, he wouldn't He yeah. wouldn't have been able to rely on Newman being the... the oh, no. The marshal that's assigned to him. Um, I just came across this one highlight that I had that I love so much. Um, and it's Anita's inner dialogue. And it said, I was not less just because you could outlift me in the weight room. We all had our strengths and weaknesses. Some people could do the math for astrophysics. Other people could drive a stick shift. No one person could do it all. I love that. There's a lot of that kind of vibe in here about, you know... Um, kind of being you and embracing you and like what your strengths are and stuff. And I love that. I love that kind of that kind of vibe. And that was just a perfect quote for it. She may not be able to do anything, but she can certainly beat the shit out of a were leopard. That scene <laughs> was so Epic. She has to subdue Bobby. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, of course, it was horrible for Bobby. And I was afraid that he may have been dead for a while there. But <laughs> so was she. The imagery of, of him changing and her just just wailing on him. Even Duke says it's got a hell of a haymaker or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Um, no, she can definitely, she has a lot of physical hand-to-hand combat training that's uh, grown throughout the books. So... Can I ask kind of a fun question? We can I ask this of Laurel as well. Oh, I know exactly what's coming. Go for it. If you could be <laughs> a supernatural creature in this world, from what you know of them right now, and I know you don't know everything, but um, would you want to be a vampire, some sort of a shapeshifter, and if so, what animal? A animator? What do you think? So it's a little bit hard because I really haven't been introduced to the vampires in this world. They're they're very um like Jean-Claude is the king. They're very kind of like area hierarchy. Yeah. I definitely get well, that's, I was just about to say, yeah. I get the impression that it's very much like the Camarilla sure, in the sure. world of darkness. Sure, 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 sure. Yes. And that's a good a good simile. And if that's the case, I actually don't want to be a vampire because there's a whole lot of backstabbing and politics. Yeah, vampires come with politicking. Everybody always forgets that. They want the fun, sexy, romantic um, children of the night vibe. And it's like, you know, you're going to have to politic here. So I would have to be a were-octopus. (laughs) 
Stop it. <laughs> I don't know if they exist, but that's me. I would just go out to the ocean every full moon and just go swim around and catch fish and collect coconut shells and then... <laughs> Well, you know what? You gave me an honest answer, and I can't fault you for that. Um, <laughs> you'd be a great rare octopus. Um, <laughs> you'd be great. And I don't know, maybe some... Well, I mean, you're not out of the politics. You could still end up as somebody's animal to call, you know. But what are they going to have you do? Sne- oh, you might. they might have you steal things, because octopuses are very sneaky. Now, that's that's just animalist. <laughs> That's creep that's speciesist. <laughs> it's just an idea. Um, <laughs> no, uh, who says if I was a were octopus that I would have to be part of the coalition or I'd well, have to they be might, part of the... They might kind of make you. They might kind of roll you. If that's the case, I probably would like to be like Edward prior to the end of this book. I think I would just like to be a badass human. <laughs> I feel you on that. I would have no problem being, <laughs> yeah. Is that is that one of the creatures of this book, a sociopath? Because there's a lot of them. <laughs> True. Yeah, no, I would definitely be kind of a badass human, I think would be my preference as well. Um, I've always loved the idea of the animator stuff and, you know, that goes into some epic places and some other books, but considering I'm, you know, like a vegetarian, I'm not going to be sacrificing an animal every time I need to raise the dead. So that's like straight out for me, unfortunately. I have speaking of epic stuff. Apparently, there's a book where she raises a zombie army. Yeah. I want to read that one. Absolutely, you do. Um, but uh, I mean, of course, I love cats. I love shapeshifters. I love lycanthropes of all strokes. So I would be down to be any sort of lycanthrope because I'm all about that life. Um, but yeah, I think I just want to kill bad people with Edward because <laughs> I love him. Well, I guess it's time to say good night. Good night. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. I, you know, I, I, I will say, I think a lot of people who are listening to this section already love and adore these books. I would think so. I, I, I just want to say, at least with this one, I'm with you now. I get you, get you now. I understand. Yeah. You get this worldwide millions of copies sold phenomena. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And it's also really meaningful and powerful. It is. And, um, you know, I kind of outlined it a little bit earlier, but I, of course, want to end on a little bit of a sappy note, you know, that I just really appreciate the character of Anita and what Laurel K. Hamilton has done with that. Um, I'm the type of girl who speaks her mind. And I mean, I am very polite and I'm very um, considerate of people's emotions. At least I try to be. But, um, you know, I've been definitely called a ball buster, a bitch, all, all that stuff so many times. And I don't mind because if that means I'm on the same caliber as Anita, then she's my sister and I'll take it. All right, everybody. Obviously, we love this book. I don't think we're going to give it a star rating no. because it's a little little different than our normal flavor since it's part of a series like this. But we obviously both had a tremendous time reading this book. Thank you, Laurel, for being on the show. Thank you for writing Sucker Punch. Fantastic read. Good night, Scott. Good night, Sandra. Please keep reading past your bedtime.
So Sandra was so nervous to talk to Laurel K. Hamilton. She was so nervous. So I get nervous before every single interview. And Sandra is so professional and so calm. And she teases me. Because I get nervous about nothing. She gets nervous about nothing. And Sandra was just so nervous to talk to her. And I think I'd be curious to hear why specifically. Um, I think for me, it's just because I've been reading these books for so long and I've been invested in the characters um, and in the world, I don't want to not be anymore. And if this author that I've been reading since I was a teenager um, <laughs> was mean, rude, dismissive, flippant, not that any author has ever, ever been that way that I've met on this show or in person. Um, Every author I've ever met has been freaking lovely and at least professional, if not warm and fuzzy, which most of them are just warm and fuzzy and lovely to talk to. But I was worried that like, what if she's awful and I have to throw in the towel of this like <laughs> incredible investment of <laughs> books and characters, emotional investment, not you know financial. Um, since I, I mean, for like twenty years or whatever. Okay, not quite twenty years that I've been reading the books, but damn near. You know, and I was like, what if I have to throw in that towel? Because if somebody is awful, I, you know, and mean to me, I would never want to read their books again. I'd be like, fuck you, you know? Um, And so it was like, oh, God, don't be a bad person that I have to give this (laughs) up now because I don't want to give it up. And you're going to make me give it up. And it's so funny because you're right. Every author we've talked to has been wonderful and lovely. In fact, this this um this show in my mind has kind of evolved over time to be a celebration of the authors so much because I have fallen in love with authors so much. I'm so Same. fascinated and and delighted by what they do and I'm so excited to to learn about them and and hear about them and talk to them. But uh this is kind of the first time where it's someone that we that that one of us has so much history with right like it's you know again this is authors that i've been reading a long time are it's not a huge list um it's you know been reading her books for a long time been reading stephen king and rice for a very very long time at this point i've been reading joe hill for a long time you know it's like it's not a huge huge list of authors um and especially one that reaches this far back into my teens like that it's like oh don't don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up and make me have to throw out this books and these characters. And I didn't think that Laurel K. Hamilton would be like that. I really didn't. But you know, it's like the stakes were high that I didn't want to be let down. Yep. And I wasn't. 